Over the previous three episodes we've looked at all manner of scary dark places. And as we near the end of our ghost trail, you'll be pleased to hear that there's still plenty of ghosts, ghouls and all manner of otherworldly entities just lying in wait for us. So tonight, join me as we embark on the final leg of our ghost trail of County Durham. Welcome to episode 38 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week, we conclude our epic ghost trail, and for the final time, ask the question, just how haunted is County Durham? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Walworth Castle Hotel The construction of Walworth Castle was completed in 1189 by the Hansard family. The family known as the Handsome Hansards, had begun to develop the castle, the estate, and the surrounding village in around 1150, choosing a site in the rolling countryside of the Tees Valley. In charters dating back to the 12th century, the castle is referred to by the name of Whaleburge Castle, meaning a settlement of the Welsh. The Black Death struck England in the summer of 1349, brought by brown rats. The Black Death was the deadliest pandemic in human history, and it killed almost 40% of the population of England, around 2 million people. The country's recovery was hindered by successive waves of the plague and raids upon the north by the Scots. Walworth Castle had been the seat of the Hansard family for almost 200 years, but by the time the Black Death had subsided in 1350, history records that the castle and its estates had passed into the hands of others. In 1391, the castle was bought back into the Hansard family with Robert Hansard reclaiming the castle for his 14-year-old son Richard. The castle had previously been held by Ralph Neville since 1367. The castle remained in the family until 1539, when Elizabeth Hansard married Sir Francis Ayscough. Elizabeth gave birth to their only child, William Ayscough, and when his mother passed away in 1558 and his father in 1563, he inherited Walworth Castle. William lived at Walworth with his wife until 1579, when the castle and all of its estates were sold to Thomas Jennison, in order to a general who lived and worked in Ireland until his death in 1586. Elizabeth Jennison lived at Walworth Castle after the passing of her husband, and continued the restructuring of the castle that Thomas had instructed prior to his death. In 1605, Elizabeth Jennison died, and her son, 
William Jennison the Elder inherited the estate. However, he never lived at Walworth Castle. He was imprisoned in 1610, five years after inheriting the castle, and again in 1612. This was for being a Roman Catholic, and for refusing to take an oath of allegiance to the crown. The family suffered financially and incurred substantial debts. Without the necessary money to maintain Walworth Castle, it began to decay and fall into ruin. The decay of Walworth Castle continued with the succession of Jenisons who owned the castle during the years that followed. But this was to change when 10-year-old Ralph Jenison inherited the estate in 1704. Ralph became a member of Parliament for Northumberland in 1727 and again in 1734. He restored the dilapidated building to its former glory and he carried out extensive redecoration throughout the castle. The decorative ceilings, doors and windows chosen by Ralph can still be seen today in the reception, the staircase, the Hansard's restaurant and the ballroom. When Ralph died in 1759, his widow sold the castle for £16,000 to Matthew Stevenson, a wine merchant from Newcastle. He sold it on shortly afterwards to John Harrison. When John died in 1819, it was left to his only child, Anne Harrison. Anne married General Arthur Aylmer, and it remained in the Aylmer family until 1931. During World War II, the castle was let to the Durham Light Infantry as an officer's mess and an HQ. It was also used to hold high-ranking German officers. In 1950, Durham County Council bought Walworth Castle from two brothers, Charles and Neville Ede, who had bought the castle following the death of the last Aylmer, and it was turned into a girls' boarding school. In 1981, the castle was renovated and converted into a luxury hotel. Walworth Castle Hotel remains one of the country's finest historic hotels to this day. It appears that over 800 years of history have left a lasting impression on the building, as ever since the hotel first opened its doors, ghostly happenings have been commonplace. There is a legend of a maidservant becoming pregnant during an affair with one of the lords of the estate. When he found out, he was furious and became worried about his reputation should anybody else find out. He was having some work carried out in the castle, so had her bricked up alive behind a wall where a spiral staircase had previously been. Understandably, she was absolutely frantic, beside herself, unable to see or move, screaming out for help, and scratching at the walls in vain. Although her screams of terror will have undoubtedly been heard coming from behind the wall, nobody came to her aid, and it's unknown how long it took for her to die, but she, along with her unborn child, died behind that wall, and her spirit remains at Walworth Castle, to this very day. Her footsteps can still be heard climbing a staircase that no longer exists. She is also seen throughout the castle, often by guests who awake to find a dark female figure standing watching them sleep. The Jenison suite is very active, with unusual sounds and objects moving on their own all too common. One day in recent years a cleaner was tidying the room when a cabinet moved on its own in front of the door, blocking her only way out of the room. It is believed that peasants held in the dungeon during a civil revolt tried to escape down a tunnel but were caught and punished. This is said to be the cause of unusual sounds that have been heard, described as the moan of someone in pain. Members of staff have been pushed by unseen hands whilst in the dungeon. Another paranormal hotbed of activity is the corridor that runs past room 17. Footsteps are regularly heard and icy blasts even on warm summer days have been reported. One chambermaid even had her pigtails playfully tugged. When she turned around, there was nobody there in the corridor with her. Mediums to Walworth Castle have said that their disturbance is the result of a spirit called Ralph. There have been three Ralphs associated with the castle during its history, but it's believed that this particular spirit is that of Ralph Jennison, who took over as owner of Walworth Castle, aged only 10, and lived here for over 50 years. He is unable to rest due to the guilt he feels for taking his own brother's life in a tragic moment of madness. The pair were arguing outside the castle when things suddenly got heated and Ralph pulled out his pistol and shot his own brother in the chest. He suddenly realised what he'd done and panic set in. He picked up his brother, who was badly bleeding but still conscious, and raced into the castle and up to the room which is now 17. He tended to his brother's wounds but he slipped in and out of consciousness before closing his eyes one last time and slipping away into death. Ralph has never been able to forgive himself, 
and he remains at Walworth Castle for all eternity. I spoke with Andrew Marseille, who has investigated Walworth Castle several times in his role as director of a company called Paranormal Tours, and he told me of the extraordinary phenomena that he has encountered. He said, I stumbled across this location back in 2004 when I was researching locations for Paranormal Tours to investigate. I spoke to the owner and asked if he had any recent reports of activity, and he told me that he and his staff have had all manner of unexplained happenings happen recently and over the last few years. I decided that it warranted further investigation and agreed to meet with the owner and perform an assessment of the site. As Walworth was about 300 miles from my home in Hampshire, my wife's son and I decided to make a little break out of it and we booked a room at the castle. On arriving, we quickly checked into room 17 opposite the Jenison Suite. My research had already flagged up some interesting happenings in the Jenison Suite, but nothing about this particular room that we were staying in. After our long journey we ventured down to the restaurant. We had a lovely meal and then we went back up to the room and we put our one year old son to bed. I decided to set up a little experiment in our room. By the door I rigged up one of our negative ion detectors called an NID and we drew around three coins on a white sheet of paper, a 2p, a 10p and a £1 coin. So we had three different colours and three different sizes. The NID is a piece of kit that sends out an audible beep when it detects static electricity. The theory around using an NID on an investigation is that there's a possibility that when a spirit enters our atmosphere, it leaves behind a static trail. And this box indicates of its presence. It had just gone 3am when I woke up, hearing an intermittent beep from the NID. I couldn't see anything in the room. However, it distinctly felt like someone was watching us. Or was it just in my mind? After five minutes or so I rolled over and went back to sleep. In the morning when we got up, I ventured over to the coin trigger object and was very surprised to see that the ten pence had been completely moved out of the circle that I'd drawn around it. The other two coins were unaffected. I have no explanation as to why the NID went off, nor why the 10p piece had moved out of the circle. My wife hadn't done it, and my son was fast asleep in his travel cot that he couldn't have got out of without a bit of help from an adult. Andrew went on to tell me that he definitely thought Walworth Castle Hotel was a worthy location for paranormal tours to investigate further, and it certainly did not disappoint. I was sat with a group of investigators in the morning room turret. It used to have a spiral staircase in there, however, today it's a circular room with a round table. We decided that it was an opportune moment to conduct a seance, and we all held hands, asking out for any energies that were listening and happy to communicate to come forward. After 15 minutes or so, we noticed that the temperature in the room had dropped dramatically. Our laser temperature guns confirmed this. As we sat there asking out, we all noticed that the room was getting noticeably darker, along with the cold. It was after this that a strange white smoky mist appeared hovering above us, showing itself in the darkness. The mist thickened and became a swirling mass, still placed above us. Then it suddenly dissipated in an instant. We all saw this while sat in our seance. Not one of the team had a logical explanation as to what the mysterious mist was and how it came to disappear. Darlington Civic Theatre On Monday, September 2nd, 1907, the new Hippodrome and Palace Theatre of Varieties was formally opened. The managing director was Signor Reno Pepe. Born in Florence, Italy, Signor Pepe had been one of Europe's greatest quick-change artists, and in fact Queen Victoria enjoyed his shows so much that she gave him her diamond scarf pin. Signor Pepe owned a number of theatres across the country, including three in the northeast, Bishop Auckland, Middlesbrough and Shildon. A lot of his time was spent at the new Hippodrome along with his wife, Mary, Countess de Rossetti, and their beloved Pekingese dog, the theatre was designed and built by Owen and Ward of Birmingham. It was built in local Middlesbrough red brick and the theatre had a distinctive look due to the 60 foot high high pyramid roof tower. The roof was designed this way to house a huge water tank for aquatic effects which were popular in the day. After running the theatre for a little over 20 years, Signor Pepe died of lung cancer on the 17th of November 1927, aged only 55. Signor Pepe's wife Mary had passed away in 1915 and the future of the new Hippodrome was uncertain. A number of different managers came and went in the years that followed, 
and the growing popularity of the cinema made times very hard for the theatre. The new Hippodrome struggled on until 1966 when the Borough Council of Darlington took control of the theatre and the name was changed to Darlington Civic Theatre. Darlington Civic Theatre celebrated its centenary in 2007 and is as popular today with the area's theatre goers as it was when Signor Reno Pepe first opened the theatre's doors to the public. It appears Signor Pepe does not want to leave the theatre, as his ghost has been seen on dozens of occasions sat in his box to the left of the stage, in a top hat, wing collar shirt and long black coat. He casts an eye over the goings on in his theatre. Signor Pepe is the best known spirit presence at the theatre, but he is far from alone. There are a number of other resident ghosts at Darlington Civic Theatre. The spectral form of his Pekingese dog has unusually also been seen, most commonly by children, at the foot of a circular staircase. A medium during the 1980s picked up on the spirit of the dog, explaining that the dog had been entombed within the walls of the theatre when it had passed away. In 1990, during the building of an extension which cut through the circular staircase, the skeletal remains of a small dog were discovered. The stage door has been found locked inexplicably. Also, the sound of jangling keys here has been heard near to the door. The finger of blame has been pointed at a spirit called George, the old stage doorkeeper who used to do his rounds on a daily basis, checking that the building was securely locked. Dressing room 12 is part of the theatre, which is built on the remains of slum houses. Sobbing has been heard in this room. A medium carried out a seance in this room in 2004 and has attributed the sobbing to a 12-year-old girl called Arabella who lived in a building which stood on this site in the 19th century. A young lady has been standing in the wings of the stage and watches performances. She appears as a dark shadow, but witnesses all explain that despite not being able to see any discernible features, they knew that the spirit was that of a young lady. It is unknown who she is, but she has been seen by both staff and customers since the 1970s. A ghost known as Jimmy by theatre staff, is said to have committed suicide while working at the theatre as a flyman. A flyman is a technician who would raise and lower scenery using ropes. He is rarely seen but often sensed, and heard climbing up and down the ladders from the stage to the fly floor. Mark Smith was part of the Northern Ghost Investigations team that spent a night at the Darlington Civic Theatre in 2008 with amazing results. This is what he had to say when I spoke to him. During a cold December night, along with a handful of guests, Northern Ghost Investigations carried out an overnight investigation into Darlington Civic Theatre. A couple of strange events that occurred during the vigils of my particular group proved very interesting. The first of these happened during our second vigil. Fellow NGN member Phil and myself, along with three of our guests, were sat in Signor Pepe's box, talking in hushed tones about the ghosts that were supposed to haunt the place. At 12.34am, the whole group was startled by what can only be described as the sound of a handful of gravel being forcefully thrown against the metal safety curtain that divides the stage from the auditorium. As there was another group conducting a vigil on the stage behind the metal curtain, I presumed it must have been one of them knocking something over, so I just logged the event and planned to ask them what happened in the break between vigils. On speaking to Carol, the NGI member who was leading the other group she told me that they had also been startled by the loud noise and agreed that it sounded like a shower of small stones but they had presumed that it was my group making the racket. Upon hearing this, Phil and I carried out a thorough investigation of the area around the safety curtain but could find no signs of gravel or anything else that could account for the noise. There were only two groups in the area at the time and everybody else was accounted for. The noise remains a mystery to this day. The second event that sticks in my mind occurred in dressing room 12. Our group was aware of the fact that this area was alleged to be the haunt of a young girl, who was believed to have lived in the slum houses that once occupied the site where this area of the theatre now stands. We sat around a small table and tried a Ouija board session, in an attempt to communicate with the girl, or indeed any other spirits present. I was not surprised when the session proved fruitless. The group had started to feel a bit deflated by that point, and we sat around chatting about the paranormal in general. Suddenly the temperature in the room seemed to drop, and the whole atmosphere became heavier. As I looked at my fellow investigators' faces, I could tell that this was felt by all present. Seizing the moment, we decided to try the Ouija board once again, and almost immediately, the planchette responded by moving swiftly to yes, when asked directly if there was a spirit present that wanted to communicate. 
One of the guests and I distinctly felt a cold draught blow across our hands whilst touching the planchette. We asked if the spirit present was that of the little girl and the planchette responded by again pointing to yes. When asked her age, the planchette pointed to eight. When she was asked to spell out her name, the planchette pointed to H and then U. Further questioning revealed that the girl seemed to be a happy little soul who enjoyed coming to watch the other living children who used the dressing room. The session was then interrupted by one of the guests jumping up claiming that she'd been prodded quite hard on the spine, through the open back of the chair on which she was sitting. The atmosphere then gradually returned to how it had been at the start of the vigil and there was no more response from the board. It is interesting to note that other than the fact that she was a young girl, this information does not match the stories of the girl supposed to be present in the dressing room. Her name is alleged to be Arabella and she is aged 12, not 8. Up until that point I've never had any success with a Ouija board, other than seeing perfectly normal small subconscious movements or witnessing blatant glass pushing from participants, either purposefully or not. I am as certain as I can be that none of the group were moving the planchette and I studied their fingertips closely. We had taken turns at removing each of our fingers from the planchette as it was moving and it continued to move. There was also a point where none of the guests had their finger on the planchette, just myself and fellow NGI member Phil, who is as sceptical of such things as I am, and it still continued to move with speed. All in all, Darlington Civic Theatre was a very interesting experience. Darlington Railway Museum North Road Station opened in 1842 to serve the Stockton and Darlington Railway, the world's first steam-powered passenger railway. The station was in use for a little over a century until the railway network was reduced in the 1960s and the station closed in 1962. The station was left abandoned and as the years passed the fabric of the building began to rot and vandals smashed every single window. So bad was the damage that it looked as though North Road Station may have to be demolished. However in the 1970s local railway enthusiasts rallied support from like-minded groups across the country and successfully saved the station. It opened up as a railway museum devoted to the area formerly served by the North Eastern Railway with particular reference to the Stockton and Darlington Railway. Exhibits include George Stevenson's Locomotion No. 1, one of the oldest surviving steam engines in all of the world and the first ever steam-powered passenger locomotive. To the ghost hunter, the most interesting piece of history within the museum is the story of the building's resident ghost, a chilling tale which has survived for over 150 years. On a bitterly cold December night in the 1850s, the station's night watchman James Durham was doing his rounds within the North Road station. Durham saw a man leave a coal house and head towards the porter cellar. He was dressed in a station clerk's uniform with a black retriever following close behind. There should have been no other station staff on site so Durham approached the man, demanding to know who he was and what he was doing there. As he neared, the intruder turned to Durham and punched him hard in the face. Durham felt blood flow from his nose and tried to return a blow to his assailant. His fist went straight through the man and struck a wall. Durham recoiled in both pain and terror. As he checked his scuffed knuckles, the phantom station clerk ordered his dog to attack. The obedient retriever sinking his teeth deep into Durham's leg. Durham cried out in pain and then the ghost and the dog simply turned around and walked away through a wall. Durham looked down to see how bad the dog bite was but there was no mark and the pain had stopped. He felt his nose but there was no blood. He told his story to colleagues who were convinced that he'd either imagined the whole thing or that he was simply making it up. Although when he described the man and the dog, they quickly realised that this was not the case. He had perfectly described a man by the name of Thomas Munro Winter, who had committed suicide at the station in early 1845. His lifeless body was found in a water closet, along with the pistol that he had used to shoot himself, and his corpse was moved to the porter cellar until it could be transferred to the morgue. Durham, a teetotaler, relates his experience to the Society of Psychic Research a number of years later, and they went on to record it in 1891 and describing it as the most thrilling encounter that has come to our notice. Sightings of a shadowy figure with his faithful black hound following closely behind continue to this day. The King's Hotel Originally a coaching inn opened in 1611, the King's Hotel 
a McCure chain hotel in the centre of Darlington, is proud to have two resident ghosts, Mary and Albert. Albert began working at the hotel in 1823 as the hotel's butler. He took great pride in his work, and he was well liked by the lords and ladies of the day. So much so, that one gentleman, who frequently stayed at the hotel, presented Albert with one of his cats as a gift. A clumsy young chambermaid named Mary joined the service at the hotel, and Albert became infuriated with her, dropping trays of glasses and constantly running late. However, her radiant smile and gentle teasing soon won Albert over and they fell in love. Albert and Mary could often be seen walking through Darlington hand in hand, and there was talk of a Christmas engagement. However, in the autumn, Mary inexplicably vanished. Albert was heartbroken, he could not understand, and he wondered if there was something he had done wrong. His friends tried to reassure him that Mary would return to him soon, but he would never see Mary again, as he went to his room, got into bed, and died. In the weeks after Albert's passing, many of the guests reported a sensation of being tucked in by unseen hands. One regular guest was convinced that it was Albert, continuing to serve the hotel in death, as he had in life. The original hotel was pulled down in 1890, it was rebuilt and reopened in 1893. It was soon accepted that Albert's spirit remained at the new hotel, with a number of staff identifying the ghostly butler on the fourth floor of the building. But the building seemed to have disturbed something else otherworldly. As staff and guests became aware of a second phantom on the third floor of the hotel, People had reported a sound like glasses being broken, followed by a female sobbing. Some had even seen a ghostly young lady running away from the noise. But it was only when a long-serving housekeeper saw this for herself, she immediately identified the ghostly young lady as Albert's lost love, Mary. To this day, it's never been established what happened to Mary on that autumn day when she simply vanished never to be seen alive again. It's been suggested that she may have been murdered. Another suggestion is that she had a secret that she simply couldn't bring herself to share with Albert, so she ran away. Albert and Mary continued to walk the corridors at the King's Hotel to this very day, and up until recent years, visitors have still reported a feeling of being tucked in by Albert. Disaster struck at the King's Hotel at 12.30am on the 15th of August 2008, as a huge fire broke out. At first, guests tried to ignore the fire alarms, assuming it to be a false alarm, as the previous night, the fire alarm had gone off twice. However, this was no false alarm, and as one of the worst fires in Darlington's history began to consume the King's Hotel, the 63 people within the hotel were quickly evacuated. By 2am, the fire was at its height, a huge plume of acrid smoke rising hundreds of feet into the air hung over the town centre, lit from below by the orange glow of the flames. The fire could be clearly seen from Scotch Corner, which is 11 miles away. At 5pm the following day, the fire, 17 hours after it had begun, was finally put out. The King's Hotel had been badly ravaged by the fire, with the fourth floor and the roof being completely destroyed. A joint investigation was carried out by Durham Police and the County Durham and Darlington Fire and Rescue Service. It was established that the fire began on the fourth floor, but the definite cause of the fire could not be determined. In 2009, I spent an afternoon at the King's Hotel in the company of hotel supervisor at the time, Mike Noble, and he told me that his staff were in no doubt as to what caused the fire. Albert. Some members of staff believe that Albert may not have approved of refurbishments in recent years to the building that he has occupied for almost 200 years, with some having felt themselves being pushed while on the fourth floor. The hotel changed its name less than a month prior to the fire, from the King's Head Hotel, which had been previously known for a hundred years. This may have been one change too many for Albert. Mike assured me that despite the loss of the fourth floor as a result of the fire, Albert still remains at the King's Hotel, with members of the night staff having seen him throughout the remaining areas of the hotel. Castlegate Shopping Centre Castlegate Shopping Centre was built on the site of what was once Stockton Castle, one of the early residences of the Bishops of Durham. Dating from at least the 12th century, Stockton Castle was originally a hall, belonging to Hugh Pudsey, Bishop of Durham. It's unclear when the castle was fortified, but the first recorded instance of it being described as a castle came in 1376. In 1644, Scottish forces captured Stockton Castle 
and it was under their occupation for two years. By the end of the English Civil War in 1651, during which time the castle was a royalist stronghold, it's been written that Stockton Castle was destroyed on the orders of Oliver Cromwell, who led the Parliamentarians to victory over the Royalists. It's almost certain that this never happened. Although we do know that the castle was in a ruinous state by now, the bloody war haven't taken its toll. At some point during the 19th century, Stockton Castle was gone, completely destroyed, and all trace of it lost forever. Although there is an unverified claim that some of the stone from the demolished castle was used in the construction of Stockton's Green Dragon Yard and throughout Finkel Street and Silver Street. On the site of the castle stands a number of buildings right at the heart of the community of Stockton-on-Tees. The Empire Theatre, built in 1908 as the Castle Theatre, acknowledging the site upon which it stood before it was renamed in 1914. The Swallow Hotel, a multi-storey car park and the Castlegate Shopping Centre opened in 1973 and during the mid-1960s archaeological excavations took place on the site, owned to its huge historical significance, before work could begin on the hotel and shopping centre. Evidence was recovered of high-status Norman stonework dating from 1150 to 1170 AD, and according to some reports, a large number of burials. From the moment it opened, Castlegate Shopping Centre itself earned a reputation as being incredibly creepy during those hours when the shops were closed and the building was left eerily silent. What's more, the reputation was warranted as security guards working through the night began to report paranormal occurrences. Music was heard drifting through the large, empty, echoey space, the source of which could never be found. Members of the public reported seeing the reflection of children in changing room mirrors, and both staff and shoppers claimed to be grabbed on the shoulder by invisible hands. On the 31st of May 2019, the Northern Echo newspaper ran a news story about the haunted shopping centre, following a claim by a local paranormal group that they had captured proof that ghosts do still roam on this site. It read, Is this proof ghosts exist? A paranormal team in Stockton thinks so. A shopping centre might not be the most obvious ghost hunting ground, but over the years, customers, staff and security have made countless reports of paranormal activity in the retail space. Strange noises or misplaced products can easily be brushed off by sceptics, but at the Castlegate Shopping Centre, there could be much more to the ghoulish goings-on and tales of terror told within these walls. The Castlegate, in the heart of Stockton, stands on the grounds of a Norman castle belonging to the Prince Bishops of Durham, dating from the 12th century, hence the shopping centre's name. Since opening to the public, several ghost sightings have been reported, including strange music and sounds heard in the dead of night by security guards and others feeling or seeing something strange nearby. Karen Eve, the centre manager at Castlegate Shopping Centre, said Castlegate is made up from two buildings, Walker House, which is currently in use, and the abandoned Stevenson House where the majority of the terrifying tales have been witnessed. The building has been frozen in time since it was deserted in the late 70s. While most of the furniture has been removed, evidence of a once busy workplace is all over. Coffee mugs still stand waiting to be washed next to a kitchen sink. Break time magazines lie on tables waiting to be read, and a rather sad looking Christmas tree sits in a corner of one room. And now for the first time since the 1970s, the disused and abandoned areas of the shopping centre will be open for the public to explore. The haunting event is being used as an exclusive ghost to a charity event in aid of one great day, supporting Great Ormond Street Hospital and Middlesbrough and Teesside Philanthropic Foundation. Chantelle Taylor, marketing manager at Castlegate said, The building is incredibly eerie and the few people who have already had access all have had creepy stories to tell. The event has been designed to appeal to not only those interested in the paranormal, but those with an interest in local history. Ahead of the eerie event, paranormal investigator Spiritus Paranormal spent the night in the shopping centre while staring into an empty room in the abandoned Stevenson house where there is no power. The team picked up on a ghostly figure using thermal detection equipment. Josh Ryan, who was filming the event on behalf of Castlegate said, as a skeptic, it was a shocking sight. The camera picked up on a figure standing still and looking directly at us. One of the team moved closer to the ghostly figure so we could compare the two shapes, and there was a significant difference between them. It was one of several things that happened during the evening that changed my opinion and convinced me. In September 2022, work began to demolish the Castlegate Shopping Centre, 
and the Swallow Hotel which has stood empty since 2009. The demolition work will take 12 months and in the summer of 2023 work will begin to build a park on the site. This is part of a regeneration programme by Stockton Council with the aim of removing poor quality buildings and opening up the high street to the river, thereby improving the views. This work will be complete by 2025, at which point I'm keen to see if the ghosts that remain here, tied to the site of the long since destroyed castle, will make their presence felt to those enjoying the park on long hot summer's days, or much more likely, to those passing through the park when it's at its quietest in the dead of night. Only time will tell. Elmwood Community Centre Built in 1873, Elmwood was the first of Hartburn's large detached properties, situated just outside the centre of the village. The first owner was a Mr Lewis Dodgson, one of the largest wholesale grocers in the area. He was the son of John Dodgson, a local philanthropist and Quaker. Three years after his death in 1875, a fountain was erected on Stockton's High Street in tribute to him. An inscription on the fountain suggested that the money was raised by voluntary subscriptions, but it is widely believed that instead it was funded entirely by his three sons in memory of their late father. It was built with the purpose of offering clean drink and water to the people of Stockton. The four bowls within the fountain once held a bronze cup which would allow the public to help themselves to a drink of water. Drink and troughs were positioned at the base of the fountain to offer water for thirsty animals. This was a fitting tribute, given John Dodgson's love of animals. But not everybody was happy about the fountain, and one particularly irate local wrote to the local newspaper in 1878, shortly after it had been built, to complain. They wrote, I pretend to know something about Stockton and what's going on, but I have never heard of a public subscription to John Dodgson before. I have every respect and admiration for the late Mr Dodgson, but I cannot see anything wise in sticking up a privately provided fountain the design of which has not been submitted to the public, in one of the finest high streets in Britain. It didn't last long on the high street, but this wasn't due to the public's annoyance. There was a fish market close to the fountain, and the sellers would use the fountain to store their fish to keep them fresh, and then to gut and clean them in the water of the fountain. So in 1892, it was moved to Robner Park, which opened the following year, and the fountain remained a popular feature of the park for over a hundred years. In 1995 the fountain was brought back to the high street, but due to the redevelopment of the street in the intervening years, it couldn't be returned to its original location. Lewis Dodgson passed away on the 13th of May 1895, aged just 54, and Elmwood was left empty. This was to change when a Mr Mountjoy Pierce and his family took up residence in the house. He owned Mountjoy Pierce and Co during the 1850s and 1860s, and had employed thousands of local men in the shipbuilding yards on the River Tees and at the Malleable Iron Company in Hartlepool. Later, another shipbuilder, Henry Grant Spence, partner in the Richardson Duck and Co shipyard, lived here until his death. His son, Colonel Gilbert Omerod Spence, continued to live in Elmwood and took over his role in the company until World War I, when he led the 5th Battalion Durham Light Infantry and was known for painting hundreds of watercolours of the front including scenes from Passchendaele and the Somme. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his actions, leading his men over the top at the Battle of the Somme. In the years following the end of the war, he was promoted to the role of Colonel Commandant, and he was elected Mayor of Thornaby. He moved out of Elmwood in 1922, but was killed in a car accident three years later aged only 46. He left his collection of watercolours to Stockton Corporation, most of which are now in the Preston Park Museum. Elmwood was once again empty, but in 1926, Harold E. Kitchen, who had won a bronze medal for England at the Olympic Games in 1908 in Rowan, moved in, and it came to pass that he was the last ever private owner of Elmwood. He also served in the war, was awarded an MBE, and was appointed Deputy Lieutenant of Yorkshire in 1948. He moved out before the outbreak of World War II, with Imperial Chemical Industries, better known today as ICI, moving in in 1939, using Elmwood as a research centre, safer from air raids, until 1950. In 1950 it was leased to Durham County Council, and by 1952 it was used to accommodate children from Hartburn Junior School. Since then it has been used for the benefit of local residents and to accommodate community groups, as well as being home to a tea room, nursery, shop and a dance studio.
And in more recent years, it has become a popular location for companies offering the chance to join an overnight paranormal investigation here. There have been stories for many years here of a ghostly housemaid, who has been seen by passers-by looking out of the upstairs window. No one knows who she is, or why she remains here, but the most often told story is that she is the sad phantom of a servant girl, who committed suicide by hanging in one of the upper story rooms, having fallen pregnant by the master of the house. With reports of cold spots, disembodied whispering, and rapidly moving shadowy figures, Elmwood is developing quite the reputation for being one of the area's haunted hotspots. Preston Hall Museum Preston Hall and the hundred acres of parkland that form Preston Park are found in the heavily wooded Tees Valley near Stockton. The earliest reference to the land, which was farmland at the time, was in 1183 in the Bolden Buke, County Durham's version of the Doomsday Book. The next recorded happening was in 1515. By this time a grand manor had been constructed and was in the ownership of William Sawyer. However, the manor and the surrounding grounds were lost when the estates of Lawrence Sawyer, a royalist in the English Civil War, were seized by the Crown. George Witham purchased the manor in 1673 and it was renamed Witham Hall. In 1722, William Witham sold the estate to Sir John Eden of Windleston Hall. In 1812 it was sold to David Burton Fowler. It was David Burton Fowler who in 1825 commenced the construction of Preston Hall as it stands today. Local shipbuilder Robert Robner bought the hall in 1882 and held on to it until after the Second World War when plans were drawn up to turn Preston Park into a shopping centre. However the estate was bought by Stockton Borough Council and in 1953 Preston Hall was opened to the public as a museum and a gallery. In the years that have passed since the museum opened, visitors and staff have reported an extraordinary number of unusual occurrences. The ghost of a highwayman has been seen just outside the front entrance of the museum. It is believed that he may have worked the Stockton and Darlington Railway that runs just behind Preston Park. His identity remains a mystery, as is when and how he died. Psychic mediums that have visited Preston Hall Museum have failed to pick up on any information relating to this highwayman. Preston Hall's Grey Lady is the best-known spectral resident of the museum. She has been seen in the Brown Corridor, which is the name often given to the corridor which runs past the period rooms. Visitors in this corridor have inexplicably felt a great sorrow, often beginning to cry themselves. A medium to the museum explained that the tragic young lady behind the mystery of the Grey Lady once lived at the hall. She fell pregnant to the groundsman, later losing the baby. An alternative explanation was offered by a historian to the museum in the early 1990s. He told of a son of the family living at the manor who fell in love with a local peasant girl. However, the family saw the girl as being beneath their son and forbid him from seeing her again. Heartbroken, the young lady walked into the middle of Preston Park and killed herself. Which of these stories are more accurate and more importantly, the true identity of the Grey Lady may never be known. In an area of the museum known as the Dungeon, which is actually an old wine cellar, a dog has been seen to walk through a wall. People often feel very uncomfortable in the dungeon, and some visitors have struggled to spend more than a few minutes in the room, commonly describing the sensation of fear, terror and foreboding. A ghostly cleaner polishes display cases throughout the museum, and the spirit of a World War I soldier has been seen on the armoury stairs. Northern Ghost Investigations arranged a ghost hunt at Preston Hall Museum in February 2008 to raise funds for the Butterwick Hospice. Claire Robinson was part of the NGI team that attended, and she told me of what lay in wait for them that evening at Preston Hall Museum. As soon as we entered the room with the famous George's de la Tour painting The Dice Players, my breathing became shallow and fast. I could find no reason for this. I didn't feel out of breath, and had not exerted myself in any way prior to entering the room. The room felt full of energy. I went to see if the medium in our party was picking up on anything and straight away I noticed his breathing had altered also. He said he sensed several energies here, one of which was very strong. We seated ourselves around the room and several guests began to complain of different sensations including stomach pains, pressure in the air similar to the popping experience at high altitudes, and heaviness and pressure like the last few weeks of pregnancy. Several mediums, including Ian Lawman and Ralph Keaton, who were present that evening, have picked up on a pregnant woman at Preston Hall, who has a tragedy surrounding her and her unborn child. 
A guest suggested using a pendulum so we got her to stand in the centre of the room where the medium sensed the energy was strongest. The pendulum began to swing from side to side when questions were asked of the spirits present. It continued to swing for almost 45 minutes before stopping suddenly. One of the investigators was using a laser thermometer to record the temperature in the room and the pendulum stopped at the exact time as a dramatic drop in the room temperature. The pendulum started swinging again, rapidly, and then after 30 seconds stopped dead instantly. During this time the temperature changes became erratic, rising as the pendulum was swinging, then dropping at the point it stopped. This happened four times before the temperature became constant and the pendulum stopped swinging completely. Our group of 10 investigators made our way to the next location, the toy room. This room didn't feel haunted, and we were all quite at ease. We decided to create an energy circle to see if we could pick up on any of the spirits that may have been present. At first we had some teething problems, and I had to break the circle several times to redirect lost guests from other groups who had wandered up by mistake, but eventually we began. After a fairly long period of time with no success, the energy became light-hearted, and some of the guests in the investigation got the giggles. We felt comfortable in the toy room, and we all felt fairly confident that if the room is haunted, we were not in the company of anything otherworldly. A member of another group came to join us but fell over in the darkness, which had us all in fits of laughter. However, this laughter turned to terror, as simultaneously every mobile phone in the room began to ring and beep. Everyone was immediately stunned or scared into complete silence. Four of the team confirmed that their phone had been turned off and all of the other mobiles were on silent. Something we ask of everybody at the beginning of every investigation. I cannot see any rational explanation for this occurrence. Claire went on to tell me of her own running with the Grey Lady during a visit to Preston Hall in her childhood. When I was a child we came to Preston Hall on a primary school visit. We had some free time near the end of our trip to explore the hall on our own. My best friend and I went to the corridor with all of the rooms made up in period style. We had enjoyed this area the most because we thought it was spooky. We were the only visitors in this part of the hall and we both saw something which caused us to scream in terror and flee. I'm a bit hazy with what exactly we saw specifically, however I know it was an older lady wearing an old fashioned long dress, who we suddenly seemed to perceive as a ghost and a threat. We both saw this at exactly the same time and we both reacted at the same time. We got into trouble with our teacher and we were told that we had made the whole thing up. On and off over the years I've always wondered about this, as the feelings of menace and terror from it were very vivid, yet I've always thought that maybe we did make it up, or at least say something normal which scared us. Despite my memories of the incident, it was only on a visit to the museum with my own daughter about three years ago, when I spoke to a member of staff who told me of an apparition that he and a colleague had encountered. What he described in great detail was exactly the same thing I had seen all those years earlier. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod, or over on Instagram at howhauntedpod, where you will see photos galore relating to our ghost trail of County Durham. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. If you'd like to get early access to episodes, as well as access to exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation, and hear the audio as it happened. You can gain access right now for less than the price of a pint. There's eight episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. There's also a tier where not only do you get all of that, but you can get your hands on some exclusive How Haunted merch, as well as join me on an actual paranormal investigation via live stream, and talk to me throughout. You'll hear what I hear and see what I see. Perhaps we'll see a ghost. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to support the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash how haunted pod all the information on how you can support how haunted pod is in the podcast episode description and over on the website i'm running a competition where two winners will get a signed copy of one of my new books 
There is a copy of Illustrated Tales of Northumberland, which was released in February, and a copy of Paranormal Northumberland, which was released in May, up for grabs. In July, I will be walking 28 miles to raise money for Cancer Research UK, in memory of my dear friend John, who lost his battle in 2017, aged only 34. To enter this competition, as well as supporting the charity, if you can afford to do so, please consider heading over to justgiven.com forward slash page P-A-G-E forward slash walk for John 2023. That's walk, the number four, the name John, and then 2023. The full link is in this podcast episode description. Please, if you can afford to sponsor me, every penny counts. Then just drop me an email at rob at how-haunted.com and I'll pop your name in the hat. I'll ship them out to the two lucky winners anywhere in the world after doing the draw at the end of July. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review this podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out we'll be doing something a little different, and I will be answering listener questions in a Q&A special. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question... How haunted. Thank you.